medical song and it concerns a disease whose classification according to the International Classification of Diseases is 302.0. Welcome to Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores the movements that made us drawing from the activist archives through to the voices of resistance today. The song we heard just then was Glad to be Gay by the Robinson Band. My name's Em. I'm your one of your hosts for today. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. 
This year at Friends of the Earth, we are celebrating 45 years of resistance. So that's 45 years that we've been mobilizing communities, resisting the oppressive forces from patriarchy to nuclear racism and transforming our future towards a more just world for all. And of course, as part of that 45 year celebrations, we are here on Acting Up, documenting some of our incredible history. I'm joined today by my co-host, Megan Williams, who's been co-producing the show with me. How are you going today, Megan? I'm very well. Got a uh, pretty good show ahead of us today. A very exciting show. So what we're going to be diving into today is a topic that, on some research, has been a little bit messy and complicated as we travel through it. So we're going to be talking about Friends of the Earth's feminist and LGBTQ history and how those have intersected with the environmental activism that FOE has done. So as a young queer and feminist member of FOE, I've always been proud to be a part of the organisation with, you know, it has quite progressive politics and there's a lot of pride that we have in policies in our constitution around things like making sure that we're hiring at least 60% women and gender non-conforming people, among other things. That's right, me too. But as we started looking, uh, taking a look back at the organisation, Faux's connection with the history uh, of feminist politics has not always been simple. Yes, there have always been women and LGBT people in the organisation, but this has not always been an easy place for those politics to exist. And there has been a need to push back against the predominant toxic masculine culture. Uh, we, which we still see today to some extent. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking with people who have been involved with different aspects of intersecting queer, feminist and environmental politics throughout FOE's history to take a deeper look into what the organisation has stood for over time. And as a bit of a disclaimer to the show, I think it's also really important for us to acknowledge that Friends of the Earth and the Environment Movement in general has um, still to this day dealing with a legacy of some transphobic political movements and thoughts um, that have emerged over the years. And as a part of Friends of the Earth Australia over the last few years, we've been developing a position statement to kind of push back on some of that and help to reshape the narrative. So this is a quote from um, that gives a bit of context to that. So Fo acknowledges that the dominant discourses of ecology have roots in heterosexist and binary notions. Biological and reproductive naturalness is a queerphobic ecological discourse and is the notion that positions humans and nature as binary opposites. Fo will continue to learn from the philosophy of queer ecology to sublimate the dominant discourse throughout intersectional work towards environmental and social justice. We are still currently engaged in conversations around how to make our safe uh, space spaces safer for trans, non-binary and gender non-conforming folks who would like to engage in environmental activism, which is an ongoing process. It's likely in this show there will be a lot of discussion of women Uh, And we would like to acknowledge that trans people, gender non-conforming people and all people living under the oppressive oppressive forces of patriarchy um, experience, you know, that some of the things we're talking about today will um, be uh, recognised, you know, will will be recognised by those people as well. Mm. Yeah, and just to note that, you know, language has changed and that, yeah, like we said earlier, there have always been queer and trans people in our organisations, even if we didn't have the language to describe that back in those times. And I'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge Lee Holloway, who was deeply involved in Friends of the Earth in the 70s and 80s and who was one of the first people in Australia to have been known to die of AIDS. 
And on the show today, we're going to be speaking with a number of different guests. So Trish Luca, who was involved in the Chain Reaction Collective in the early 80s, Lynn Harriet and Beth Malik, who were both bookshop coordinators, which is a space that's been over the years a stronghold for feminist ideas in the Friends of the Earth Network, and Sam Castro, who's currently involved with the Friends of the Earth International Gender Justice Working Group. So strap yourself in. It's going to be a great episode. We're covering the history of campaigns and the politics of the time over the 45 years of campaigning here in so-called Australia, what we did and why it's still important. So stick around after this community service announcement. Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. This year's delicious Radical Radio wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift? Or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. You are listening to Acting Up. We're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with a retrospective series looking into our 45 years of creative resistance. You are here with Megan and M, and we're talking about feminist and LGBTQ histories at Friends of the Earth and how that's intersected with the campaign work that has been done over the years. And on the line we have... Um, Trish Luca. Um, who was involved in Chain Reaction from the early 80s. Welcome to the show, Trish. Thanks. So, Trish, what was the context for the feminism and gay rights kind of movements in the time that you are involved with Chain Reaction? Um, well, I, I became involved in Chain Reaction magazine um, initially in Sydney, although... The magazine was based in Melbourne. Um, uh, you know, the context, I think, was a period of change. I think that the magazine itself, um, you know, was uh, the shift that occurred in terms of the direction of the magazine reflected in the content of the material that the magazine carried um, was indicative of a shift that was going on generally, uh, po- you know, possibly in the environment movement. I wasn't, I hadn't really been involved in the environment movement before I became part of Chain Reaction magazine, um, but other members of the editorial collective had been. And, I, you know, I think there was a shift towards, on some people's part, towards interest in more... Um, broad-based, broad-left politics. Mm. And so what would you say drew you towards Chain Reaction at the time? Uh, look, I, I was a, um, a young woman. I'd been active as a university student in um, various feminist and um, progressive uh, environmental issues and 
I felt that I had skills perhaps particularly that were perhaps particularly useful in a publication context and that's what drew me to it but also the fact that it was uh, it reflected in some ways the kind of political framework and perspective that I had. Mm, absolutely. And so what were some of those issues that you were covering in those issues around the sort of early 80s time? Like what was the focus of Chain Reaction? Well, it's been interesting actually in you know preparing to talk to you today. I've had a quick look at some of the back issues from that time. It's a long time ago. <laughs> um, and it was, it was um, a, a good reminder, I think, of how dynamic uh, politics were at the time. Um, the type of issues that we wanted to cover in the magazine when I was involved were not limited to uh, conservation and kind of single issue or single site environmental destruction issues. And that I think it's fair to say that to a large extent up until the late 80s and uh, sorry, up until the late 70s and early 80s, um, the environment movement in Australia was largely char- characterised by attention to uh, single issue sites uh, around uh, environmental destruction, conservation, uranium mining and dam building and so forth. Um, whereas what some of us uh, wanted to do was to approach those issues within, within a broader left critical uh, perspective. And so we started uh, focusing on campaigns that feminists were organising both within the environment movement and outside of it. So autonomous organising on the part of of women around things like nuclear disarmament and peace, but also around um, violence against women and um, campaigns for you know, um, women's refuges, issues around unemployment and poverty, uh, issues, social issues, issues that concern women in particular at the time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And looking back on those old issues, like you said, you can really feel the, you know, there is a real dynamic element to those, those stories and seeing the kind of links being drawn into all the different kind of intersecting oppressions. I'm interested to hear, because um, as I was looking back at some of those issues, looking at the kind of letters to the editor section, there did seem like there was a bit of a pushback, particularly from some men writing in saying, you know, oh, we want to get back to just talking about the, the environmental issues and kind of just going back to that single issue focus. Like, did you feel a lot of pressure from from that? Yeah, well, it was interesting to read those letters um, for me as well. I, I'd forgotten. Um, I mean, it is a very long time ago. And I yeah. think, as I said, I hadn't really been very active in the environment movement up to that point. I was very young. And um, and it's quite striking, though, when you read those letters, that for many people who had been involved in the movement, particularly, I'd say, uh the kind of white middle class men, heterosexual men who, you know, really had dominated the movement up to that point. It was very, um, 
many of them were alarmed, many of them were angry. You know, they wrote letters saying that the content that we were running, which focused on feminist issues and gay and lesbian issues, was irrelevant to the environment movement and that, and that you know, threatening to cancel their subscription if we didn't get back to the main issues. There was obviously a reaction. Mm, absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us today, Trish. Um, my pleasure. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks. We'll be back after this short CSA. Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. Out on the patio. This year's delicious Radical Radio wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. You're listening to 3CR. This is Friends of the Earth's 45th Birthday Retrospective History Series. My name's Em. I am joined here with my co-host, Megan. Hello. And today we're looking back at Friends of the Earth's history, in particular regarding feminism and LGBT activism and how those have intersected with Faux's politics over the years. And one of the big spaces at Faux over the years has been the bookshop. And unfortunately, the bookshop is no longer up and running, but it was formerly a big part of creating a community space at Faux. And although it's been closed for roughly six or seven years, people still bring in books that uh, that they'd like to have sold there. Uh, we just... Oh. In the feminist context, the bookshop always sold feminist and lesbian texts. So joining us on the line, we have Lynn Harriet, who was the bookshop coordinator from 1988 to 1994. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. It's such a um, pleasure to be able to um, have a yak about this stuff, a bit of a trip down memory lane. Yes, well, really um, sure. Um, I was doing some work in family violence in women's refuges and um, that was fairly full on and I, I realised I, um, instead of just saving the women and children, I needed to save the planet and so I got involved in the collective that ran the bookshop there as a volunteer and pretty soon after that um, a job became vacant at the bookshop so I applied for it and got it um, working alongside Judy Rickard. 
And when you started at FOE, what was the attitude like towards equality, discrimination and shared, you know, gendered labour, um, sort of in the general context within society? Um, yeah, uh, well, I think there was a really strong focus on um, uh, thinking about women and equality and um, a kind of a, gee, there's... Nowadays, there'd be some stuff around emotional labour and some language we could use to talk about it. But at that time, we were struggling to kind of name it. But there was definitely conversations going on about number of women doing the work and who was getting employed and who wasn't and uh, thinking more generally in the world about um, uh, about what was going on. Yeah. Mm. And so, Lynn, you said that, you know, you came to Friends of the Earth with this background, kind of working with in domestic violence and having that kind of um, perspective that really brought women's issues to the forefront. How did you find that that perspective was integrated into Friends of the Earth and the way that Friends of the Earth was organising in that time? Uh, well, there were, um, it was interesting because there was a lot of stuff talked about, but not a lot of stuff written down. So it was, um, there was this, pretty full-on weekend where Judy Rickards, Paul Damasi and I spent a weekend just um, writing up policies and kind of the way that the organisation worked, sort of some of the uh, kind of the culture of the way the place worked to help people understand it and also so that we had some stuff written down rather than just being handed down um, kind of verbally to people. Um, I remember that being a, a pretty landmark moment to have it all in one place, in one document. But, yeah, it was, you know, there was very much um, we're striving for this as with and probably other people have talked about, you know, the, the joys and pain of collectives. We were striving for working on that in that kind of collective way and it was always... When you when you're going against what the kind of the mainstream, very coded ways of operating are, it's, it's a struggle to um, keep, the, keep the faith and keep staying on the, the track of an alternative way of thinking and doing things. And this might be taking you back a bit, but can you give us any specifics of what would have been included in those policies? Like I know now today we have a quota for 60% women and gender non-conforming people to be uh, employed uh, as, as the employee base. It, can you remember any of the specifics that you were writing on those policies? It was it, it was a lot more around because um, I think that stuff around quotas is stuff that's fairly you know in some ways fairly recent, like really naming a number. Um, it was the work the work that we were doing was more around the intention to think about this stuff and have this at the forefront when we were hiring, and a lot of it was around how do you operate as a collective? What does a collective look like? What happens when you're stuck, when some people don't agree? You know, does a collective mean unanimous decision-making and how do you make it safe for people to say no? Um, and often the people who want to say no are those people in those minorities who maybe whose views haven't been considered. How do you How do you gain all the views and how do you make it safe to say no? Mm. And, yeah, did you find, you know, when you were coming into those consensus decision-making process that you know, those gendered dynamics were an issue in stopping people from being able to contribute to the consensus decision-making processes? Yeah, yeah. When I look back and I think about it and, you know, with everything, it's the kind of if only I knew then what I know now, um, I, there was a real commitment to 
discussing everything in a very large group. I know now that it would have been much better to have split up into twos and threes and had smaller groups and then come back to the larger group after that because that large group, the, just the very fact of speaking in large groups, it's, it's tricky for lots of people to do that for lots of reasons. If you're in the minority, if you're female, um, there's a whole range of um, reasons why it might be really tricky to speak up or speak out. And... Like you were kind of putting in writing things like that were sort of unspoken at foe but practiced. Like how was that received? Was it was it accepted or did, was there some resistance? Oh, now you're really making me work hard to try <laughs> and remember. Um, I think there was a level of. And obviously, I'm in my own little bubble, and I'm so pleased with the work that we've done. I've got no idea whether, um, in some ways, um, I think there was a level of yay, at least, at least this stuff's written down, and at least it's a starting point. Because, yeah, it, it, it was kind of, it was unspoken, but it was also spoken, but nowhere was it kind of clearly stated in writing that this is what we're doing and why and how. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think there was probably a mixture of things. And I know that the document we put together then went around, got bounced around the organisation a whole bunch with people adding and thinking and talking. So it started conversations, yeah. Mm. And, you know, obviously you were involved with the bookshop and the bookshop is formed a part of the larger sort of network would you say that the bookshop itself kind of had like a more specific or offered a more feminist space than other pockets of foe or did you feel like there was a general culture of of kind of feminist and consensus decision making in that time oh i think the bookshop was seen as a fairly um feminist stronghold (laughs) um (laughs) there were some strong women who were employed there over the years um so judy ricard definitely um, Marnie Daphne was also someone employed there, you know, strong, strong, outspoken feminists who were, who were really, um, you know, holding steady to some ideals that were sometimes difficult for some parts of the organisation to hear. Um, and, you know, we, and it was a, it was a centre of a whole stack of talk because we had feminism, we had stuff around sexuality, we had, um, politics, environmental stuff, um, you know, some even some uh, food and cooking stuff. We had um, Aboriginal politics. Um, there were whole stacks of ways in which we were putting out messages to, to the organisation as well as to the outer world about a different way you could do things. We produced a whole bunch of badges and stickers. Um, the bookshop did, its, um, did that itself. We don't, didn't only stock what other people had done. We also did some stuff ourselves around recycling and... Um, um, environmental issues and, you know, sold T-shirts and calendars and tea towels that was the place to come for um, for your fashion needs and also your Christmas shopping needs. Um, that was a mad time around around the end of the year. We, we used to do maybe um, a third of all of our trading for the budget was done in that last month and a half, two months of the year. Wow. Huge. Yeah, yeah, and it's a shame and that it would have been over a million dollars. Sorry, wow, well, yeah, been over a million dollars that we were running through. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a shame we don't have the bookshop anymore. It's been a really important part of Foe's legacy, and it's been really great to speak with you about that today. Thanks for joining us, Lynn. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Okay, we're going to go to a quick song, and we'll be back after the break. You're listening to 3CR. This is Acting Up. 
Welcome back to Acting Up on 3CR. This is M. We are celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday this year, and we're doing a bit of a retrospective history series, looking back at Friends of the Earth's history, looking back at some of the important moments we've had over the years. And today in particular, we are looking at how feminism and queer politics have played into Friends of the Earth as an organisation, speaking to some people who have been active over the years in that space. On the phone now, we've got Beth Malik, who was the bookshop coordinator at Friends of the Earth for some time. How are you going, Beth? Yeah, I'm good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you great. So how did you first get involved with the bookshop? Oh, I live locally. I, I just lived in Fitzroy and I was shopping down at the food co-op and I think they might have had an ad up looking for volunteers in the bookshop. So I put my name down and joined up, but... Really quickly after that, the coordinator didn't get paid or hadn't been paid for a year or something. It was in, it was a critical time. It was in a bit of a mess, actually, the bookshop. Mm. So there were a few of us on the committee that got together and decided that we were going to save it. Um, yeah, so that we, we sort of took on a more leading role. Two of us became the coordinators and we ran it for a year unpaid and then we were able to pay ourselves after that time. Great. And so what was the political climate like at the time when you were first getting involved with the bookshop? Oh, we used to have to shut the shop quite regularly. At least once a week, we were going down to do demos. It was a real thing at Friends of the Earth. It, was, it probably is still now. Mm-hmm. But at the time, there, um, we were campaigning against uh, HEX coming in, actually. So that was a big one for us. We were always down the street protesting at um, at Treasury and Parliament House about um, not wanting to pay HEX fees. Um Jabaluka was around when I was around. I was there from about 94 to 99. Mm. So lots of logging stuff. Yeah. So we were deep in the forest. We are deep in the Otway, deep out in Goolungook. And, yeah, Jabaluka started to raise its ugly head towards the mid to late 90s, I think it was, yeah. Mm, absolutely. Mm. And what, what about, um, you know, the kind of broader activist movements at the time? Like, what would you say the state of kind of feminist and gay and queer politics was at that time? I think it was a real turning point from feminism turning into feminism. So mm. there was a point in history where we were looking at all different types of feminisms and there wasn't just one, and it was coming out of the backlash. So we really had that big backlash in the 80s, and we were coming out into this different time now where we were talking about postmodernist feminist theories and post-structuralist feminist theories um, along with queer theories, and there was a whole mishmash of different types of theories that we could be discussing at an academic level. But in the you know in the real world, in the in the political level, I think people were... Were, we went into the Spice Girls. We went into this this period in the 90s of girl power and girls can do anything and women, we have equality. And so coming out of the backlash, then we had to contend with, hang on, hang on, hang on. We don't actually have all that much power. We are still earning less than men. We don't have as much superannuation. Most of the domestic violence is occurring towards women. So where do we get this idea that girl power is doing something really, really good for women? Um so we were exploring the issues around girl power actually being detrimental because it was depoliticizing feminist theories. And we did. We really, in the 90s, went through this period of we don't need feminism. We don't have to discuss politics and feminisms anymore. We don't need any of that because we've got girl power. So that was a really tricky time, I think. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting, you know, because for me, who was a child of the 90s, you know, I feel like the Spice Girls is what got me into feminism as a kid. But <laughs> I've definitely heard that feedback before from 90s feminists who were really, you know, anti-girl or, you know, not anti-girl power, but, you know, that whole concept was really depoliticizing. Yeah, they've watered it down. It just seems to be like, why Why can we not have a serious political debate about feminisms anymore? Why, when we were going into a period where we were acknowledging the different types of queer theories and the different types of feminist theories that made up the whole political scene, it, you know, now, what? We can't, yeah. Mm. So it was, it was quite tricky because nobody really wanted to talk about it on that deep political level anymore. And I feel like we've come all the way back into it again, which Absolutely. is great. And mm. so we just had on the air just before you, we had Lynn Harriet, who was the bookshop coordinator until about 94. And we were just discussing how, you know, in terms of the context of Faux, the bookshop has always been or was really um, quite a political feminist space in the organisation. Did you feel that when you were a member of the bookshop as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. When I came in, I was studying women's studies and gender at La Trobe at the time. So I was sort of quite big in that space. And I came in and went, wow, wow, this is where all the books are. Mm. Um, And Lynn did very well with, I remember, lesbian crime fiction. We used to have these book sales and we used to always have to to sell off all this really weird lesbian crime fiction, which became my favourite genre. I absolutely (laughs) loved it in the end. Um, But yeah, she had a great range of stuff so we tried to keep up with that. And um, we had a few sort of key people come through the bookshop that we tried to get speakers in. We had Vandana Shiva, who's of course, you know, a really... Mm. A uh, key political figure in India during the eco-feminist movement. Um, she came mm, um, right. into the into the bookshop, and so we we used to try and do a few of those interesting uh, sign-up sessions. You know, have fun book signing yeah. sessions. Yeah, but it was it was it was a really really good good section in the shop, and we there were four of us that were on the committee running it after in the in the mid to late 90s all had different range of knowledge so I remember there was a woman who was studying shiatsu and she did the health section and Tara did the indigenous section I remember Lindell and I did the feminist section and then between all of us we'd order the books in the environment section so it was great having that different range of knowledge on the committee and we could all jump in and and say what you know what was good in that area mm. so we tried to keep that that um, feminist section alive with what people were wanting to buy. And I think people were buying a lot of that eco-feminist stuff out of Friends of the Earth. They were coming in for all that sort of... There was a movement in America that were doing a lot of that eco-feminist writing. Mm. Mm, Absolutely. And, so you know, I feel like the food co-op as well as the bookshop, you know, it has always been a kind of real feminist or, you know, women-dominated space. I'm wondering if, you know, you received any backlash or any kind of any people in the rest of the Friends of the Earth organization who kind of came up against some of your more feminist values at that time? No, no. Yeah. I think I think sometimes people used to come out of the forest and they used to be mad. I think they used to get really aggressive out in the forest and sometimes we'd have a few problems with people coming in back into the city life and they'd come into the bookshop and of course we had rules and regulations and a cash register and things like that and I thought you know, sometimes that sort of mad forest attitude used to, you know, wrap people up and, um, you know, there were a few disagreements between how, how the organisation should be run because we we're a business. Um, and they didn't really like that aspect of it. But apart from that, no, no, it was, um, it was just a fantastic place to be. I used to always sit up on the balcony um, ordering the books and running, you know, running the show from up there. I used to have volunteers that sat downstairs and they used to always call up to me. Beth, everyone used to sing out. Of course, there was Beth in the food cob as well. So 
it was just it was just a fantastic. Uh, it, was, it was some of the best times of my life being in that organisation because everyone was just so good to each other and supportive of each other. And yeah, it was it was a great space to be in. Mm, that's great to hear, and it's yeah, it seems like a really a really special time that you were involved down there in the bookshop, and. Mm. You know, obviously the bookshop doesn't exist now, which is a bit of a shame. But, do, you know, what do you see as kind of the, the legacy of the bookshop at Friends of the Earth? Oh, the legacy. Um, I still, to this day, find, if I go through my filing cabinet, old stickers and badges and things like that around, and I remember, oh, yes, I remember this, the Boycott Barley campaign, you know. Like, who remembers that? There's lots of old memorabilia about campaigns that we used to run and some stuff that, you know, still runs today. Um, people from film crews used to come in quite a bit when they were doing TV shows and movies and they would buy old campaign posters to put on the walls of the movie set. Wow. That was fantastic. So, yeah, I don't know if they still have all that <laughs> stuff, but literally that little office that I was saying that I sit in up on the, up on the mezzanine, that was just full of old boxes of badges and stickers and posters and campaign leaflets. And it was a real archive of, um, you know, the political history of the place, really. So there would have been a lot of history. I don't know what happened to all that stuff. Hopefully Mm. they, yeah. Well, yeah, we we still do have a lot of of boxes, a lot of dusty boxes. (laughs) So probably got some of that stuff... um, Locked away up in our attic or up on the up on the mezzanine upstairs. So, yeah, there is there is something. It's great to be able to um, you know speak with you as well and get a bit of oral history going and make sure we memorialise some of the stories of people who have been involved over the years. So it's been really great to speak with you today, Beth. Oh, lovely! Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. This is acting up. We're just going to go to a few quick CSAs and we'll be back after the break. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also, while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 
Wear your Radical Radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419-8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get one one now. You are listening to 45 Years of Creative Resistance, a retrospective history series about Friends of the Earth. We're on 3CR and it's part of the Acting Up program. This is Em. I am your host for today, here with my wonderful co-host Megan in the studio. That's right. And with us is Sam Castro, a Friends of the Earth, a very solid Friends of the Earth contributor, um, here to talk with us about gender justice and feminism. Welcome to Sam. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Sam. Thank you for having me. So off air then, obviously you heard um, Beth's interview um, talking about her experiences in the bookshop at Friends of the Earth in the 90s. Mm. Um, and we we're just reflecting on your experiences as a young feminist in the 90s. So how did your experiences compare with Beth's? You know, obviously you weren't necessarily involved with Friends of the Earth then, but just mm. kind of getting into political activism at that time. Yeah, well, I, I was part of the generation that... Uh, one, the Labor Party introduced the HECS, um, so suddenly we had to pay for higher education my first year into university. And then at the other end of my degree, I walked out into the recession we had to have by the same Labor government, I might add. Um, so, yeah, I was young and also learning all about these new political concepts at university as an undergraduate. And I guess for me, there was a real divide between the second wave feminist theory, which was, you know, like get out of the kitchen get your economic power, you know, your freedom is in the workforce and stuff like that. And for me, coming into feminism uh, through university, it was very much about uh, the post-structural position around feminism, but I didn't see it as depoliticizing, although I do think uh, that happened sort of later on, probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was definitely a depoliticizing by basically making everyone a feminist if mm. you said you were a feminist. But uh, for me in the 90s, it was really this this division between um, second wave feminism, which came out of America, which was very much focused on individualism and stepping into the workforce and out of the kitchen um, in an attempt, I guess, to smash the sexual division of labor. Um, but we all know how that played out. It just meant women did more. Um, so <laughs> uh, three shifts a day instead of two shifts a day, or you know. Um, but for me, it was yeah, it was it was kind of the opposite. I actually, I guess, because you know, as part of Generation X, as as the millennials who we all have baby boomer parents, we were squeezed out of the economic market. We walked out into a recession. Uh, so for me, the whole thing around the second wave feminism didn't work and I wasn't able to do whatever I wanted and I wasn't suddenly granted all of this equality and it became quite clear there were class and economic divisions uh, as well as sexual divisions in terms of gender identity and race. Uh, so we were exploring all of those interlinked uh, oppressions and um, and also claiming our own sexuality in that. And so we were often referred to as a bunch of lipstick feminists because we also, 
you know, um, wore lipstick and went out and partied, but also had a very clear understanding that the claim of the previous generation's uh, ideas of liberation had actually been fed back into the capitalist patriarchal system. And, yeah, Gen X was kind of squeezed out of all of the capitalistic benefits of that before we even graduated university. So it led me down a very different, what I would consider, I went back and started reading French feminist theory and looking at structural power relationships, and it kind of set me off on a whole different path right at the time where the replacement of the second wave feminist sort of theory in practice in Western cultures um, became tied with the New Age philosophy. Mm -hmm. So it became ecofeminism as in women are these goddesses to be worshipped um, as opposed to, I guess, the more realistic components of ecofeminism, which is society views us as an endless resource to be exploited um, and we are not all natural caregivers and we don't want to be exalted for our capacity to birth more economic units. So, yeah, for me there was a real generational shift in the thinking as a young woman of the 90s to actually have the most critical voices coming from the older generation of feminists mm-hmm. telling us that we weren't serious because we were wearing lipstick and liked listening to hip-hop and techno music, um, but the reality was we were feeling feeling the, the full force of their class warfare upon us before we even left university. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting to see some of those conversations between mm. generations develop over time. Um, and I guess, you know, jumping forward a bit, obviously that was before your time at FOS, so yes. how would you say that informed your entry into Friends of the Earth and as an organisation? I was uh, working in international aid and development sector before I started at Friends of the Earth, and prior to that I worked in uh, mainstream media, and uh, both of those sectors are very hyper-masculine and hierarchical, um, and kind of when I stepped out of the uh, aid and development sector, I, I didn't have another job, I just reached breaking point. Um, as we often do when we just work and work and work. And so I remember going home and writing a letter to myself that said, I want to work somewhere that reflects my feminist values, that reflects my concern about the environment. I know I want to be around um, people that aren't mainly cis men, uh, and I want to have real power in in forging something different and bringing about change. And then the job came up at Friends of the Earth, and when I started sort of... I knew of Friends of the Earth, but not a great detail about the sort of, you know, internal structure and stuff. Mm. And so when I started doing some research to apply for the role, I was just like, this is totally where I want to be. This is exactly the kind of organisation with such a radical um, pro-feminist history. It, it, it was just like, I really hope I got this job. And even though it was like, you know, a massive pay cut <laughs> mm. and all of those things, I was like, no, this is the headspace I want to be in because these are good politics and... I think I'd recognised, having worked in other parts of the not-for-profit sector, that there was so much work to be done to break the sort of patriarchal division of labour and hierarchy and decision-making, even in the NGO sector. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's pretty cool to have heard from some of the people who sort of wrote those policies that then allowed you as a younger feminist to step into the space. And now you're a part of the Gender Justice Working Group, which is a part of kind of the broader Friends of the Earth international framework. Mm. So that's kind of, you know, we've got our little micro Friends of the Earth Melbourne, Friends of the Earth Australia. Then on the big level, we are collaborating with other international Friends of the Earth groups. And obviously, gender justice in the network is a part of that. So maybe for our listeners out there, could you just explain a little bit about what the Gender Justice Working Group is? 
Yes, yeah, so Friends of the Earth International, which is in 76 countries and divided into four regions, uh, it has representatives from each region and our full title is Gender Justice and Dismantling Patriarchy uh, and deliberately a long wordy title but we wanted to be very specific about what we were doing uh, and the aim of the group uh, is to work collaboratively together to challenge patriarchal behaviour and gender injustice both within our federation of groups but also to use that political lens and tool of grassroots anti-capitalist feminism which recognises class and other oppressions that work together um, to hold power uh, to find a way to implement that into our campaigning work in an attempt to understand that there can be no climate justice without addressing gender justice, uh, particularly considering that so many uh, women and children are impacted by uh, the oncoming crisis that we face. And we don't want it to be uh, the most vulnerable and oppressed people getting thrown under the bus to save the wealthy. Mm. We want to see actual system change. And our feeling is the only way we can bring about really long-lasting, effective change is to address the issues of concentration of power and hierarchy. Mm. And what's the history of this group? Like, is it a more recent thing, or have we seen that collaboration on the international level for some years? Uh, so we've been collaborating since um, there was a motion brought to the 2016 sort of uh, general meeting of all the groups, which happens every two years, based on some bad behaviour that had happened within uh, the Federation in other countries. And that motion was to recognise that violence and oppressive behaviour towards women and uh, non-conforming gender people had to stop within our federation and that we needed to take it seriously. And also there was a recognition that the, the political and critical analysis that was required to tackle the complexity of the climate crisis that we're facing uh, required us to really have an effective tool for doing that and that uh, anti-capitalist grassroots feminism, which is from the roots up between urban and rural, uh, that is founded in so many Latin cultures and indigenous cultures, either organically or by intent, uh, really seemed like an awesome tool in which to approach that. And we had a lot of support, obviously, from our uh, comrades in other folk groups in Latin America, South America and Mexico. So, yeah, that was brought to the meeting. It was agreed that a working group would be formed across the regions to tackle it holistically, and I was um, elected as one of the Asia-Pacific representatives, along with an extraordinary human rights lawyer from Bangladesh who does amazing work in a very oppressive society. Uh, so, yeah, so we've been working together now going on three years, and we've made a whole heap of progress in that time both in terms of creating, <laughs> talking about policies, creating internal policies around anti-violence and anti-oppression um, for the Federation as best practice to be shared amongst all of the groups, and also establishing how we use that feminist lens uh, to look at where our vision is for the future and how we campaign on issues, whose voices we promote, and, and how we help improve um, women to be able to participate in real decision-making processes and support them so they're not um, 
discluded because they have children and they can't travel and they can't afford to bring their baby and all those kind of hindrances that are just taken for granted often by men in in groups where they don't even think about all the things a woman with a young child has to think about just to get herself to the table yeah. at a meeting, let alone participate without being distracted by a baby. So it's been really beautiful in this group because we do have a baby in the group and um, male companions either from the local faux groups or that have come along from the group that person is from, have come and taken care of the children so that the women can focus on the work that they're doing. Uh, and it's been a really beautiful thing to watch, yeah. Mm, that sounds great. It's really beautiful to see some of that, like, you know, future visioning work that's so essential to our movements, mm. being able to actually thrive, you know, in, in this environment. I think that's really important. Mm. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, we've been speaking about kind of Friends of the Earth, Australia's history with feminism and some of the you know toxic masculinity that over the years we've come up against and you know I guess you know we still do face to an extent I'm wondering what you feel like your position you know when you speak with people from other faux international groups how you feel that kind of compares in the international network yeah that's a really good question I I feel like the first time I went to one of these meetings overseas um I after a week of meeting and being with the local group that we were with, I walked out of the meeting in tears and wondering if it was all just too much um, because I realised how actually light years ahead Australia and in particularly Melbourne, the group that I'm from, are in addressing this issue. And, of course, it's never perfect and we're, we've all been sort of inculcated from birth into a system to privilege a particular masculinity, etc. Um, and we're always striving to break those things down, both in ourselves and even our loved ones around us. Um, but what I realised is that in a federation of 76 countries that include places in Africa and Russia and across Southeast Asia, um, there, there are so many different struggles that women are facing. And it was almost like on the flight home I started tracking by country and group, this group is still at first wave feminism phase, you know, they're dealing with the basic thing of don't sexually assault me in my group or tell me I have to do something sexual to get a promotion and then we've got second wave over here where women are doing good work but not being recognised for it or they don't have equal pay and then there's groups like Faux that are in the third wave or the fourth wave, whatever wave we're in now I don't even know what it is, post wave post wave, yeah. post wave waves uh, of coming back to the understanding that patriarchy does not operate in a vacuum, that there, there, there are mutually reinforcing oppressions that we need to address to change the system. And, you know, sometimes it feels quite frustrating because things move slowly and, and we're so far ahead. It's like, and they've got so far to go and the planet is burning. How do we do this? But the strength and the resilience coming from the women in those groups is extraordinary. And also just the privilege that we have in Australia where, yes, the police are becoming more violent with activists and protesters, but, you know, there are many of our comrades, our brothers and sisters across Asia and Africa and South America that risk their life every time they go out on the street mm. and that have been murdered and raped and beaten. And, you know, so, yeah, I also just overwhelming sense of gratitude that these people have the courage to do that pioneering, forging work in a space that is so much more dangerous and repressive than what we face here and you know mm. that's saying a lot considering the rate of violence against women in this country absolutely and it 
just feels like we could talk about this forever, but unfortunately we do have to wrap things up. We're coming to the end of the show. So I want to say a big thank you so much for joining us today, Sam. It's been really great to get the current perspective and just seeing where we're at right now and in that international space. It's quite inspiring work. Thank you, and thank you for doing this show. I love the fact that there is just a whole history of faux being told. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And I'd like to thank all our other guests for joining us today, Trish Luca, Lynn Harriet, and Beth Malik. And thanks so much to my co-host, Megan, for all your support in the studio and work co-producing the series. No worries. Thank you to him. And thanks, everyone, at 3CR who's been helping us with the show. If you want to listen back to any of the episodes, they're all available for streaming on demand via 3cr.org.au slash acting up. Don't forget to reach out if you want to get in touch via our Facebook page or give us a call. And stay tuned. Up next, we've got... Jan's Tuesday Home Time, another amazing Radical Current Affairs show. Taking us out today, we're going to be hearing a song by Slow Dive. The song is Machine Gun. This has been Acting Up. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you next time.